If you're visiting for the first time, you may not know we're in the middle of a series. We've been in it for about four months, listening to the words of Jesus, and the focal point is on the imperatives of Jesus, the commands that he gives us in the Gospels that we are called to obey. Today, I have to admit, this is a a rather difficult one. It's one of Jesus' hard sayings. He commands us, as you heard Sally Ann talking about, not to pronounce oaths. And that has caused a lot of consternation and debate and difficulties, in fact, throughout the centuries in the church. You know, why is there so much controversy? We have oaths in our society today. The president, when he's inaugurated, you know he takes an oath, puts his hand on the Bible, and he solemnly swears that he will faithfully execute the office of president of the United States and will, to the best of his ability, do what? Preserve, protect, and defend. Okay, civics lesson time now. Preserve, protect, and defend what? The Constitution of the United States. That's in the Constitution. You know, we have many other kinds of oaths. When you enter the military or you take a public office, usually there is an oath that you pronounce. In courtroom, you are subpoenaed to give testimony, and it's assumed then that you're going to tell the truth. No, it's not assumed. You're required to tell the truth based on an oath that you give to tell what? The truth. What else? The whole truth. What else? Nothing but the truth. What else? So help you God. I remember, I don't know if we still do it in the grade schools, but every morning, loudspeaker would come on and we would sing the Star Spangled Banner and we did what? The Pledge of Allegiance to the flag of the United States. There are some that do not wish to do that. It is against their conviction. The Jehovah Witnesses are a good example of that. During World War II, they were, in fact, not only persecuted, but prosecuted for not saluting and the flag and giving their Pledge of Allegiance. In Minersville School District versus Scobitis in 1940, it was ruled that they were required to do so, that there was, it was because of the secular purpose and the secular interest of the state national cohesion and patriotism, especially during a time of war, that those interests overrode the incidental religious beliefs of people. Three years later, after many Jehovah Witnesses had been persecuted even more, the Supreme Court overturned that ruling in 1943 in West Virginia State Board of Education versus Barnett, in which they said a state, in fact, cannot prevent a religious practice as long as that religious practice does not present a grave and immediate threat to the interests of society. So you see, this issue of oaths and pledging and swearing has caused a lot of consternation, not just in the churches, but in society. And Jesus today speaks to that, about the need for oaths. And that raises some questions that are more profound than just swearing. By swearing, we mean pledging according to some object that we put our hand on. It raises questions about truthfulness in our society and about sincerity in our society. See, what I think Jesus is doing here is he's really opposing systems that encourage duplicity, systems in society that 
promote dishonesty. Would you stand together with me as we read these verses from Matthew, the fifth chapter, as we honor his word, beginning in verse number 33. It's in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. We know that. And he says, again, you have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond these is of evil. May God bless the reading and honoring of his word. Let's have a seat. And of course, that last statement is we usually say, let your yea be yea and your nay be nay, even though we live in the 21st century. You know, the context of this is very clear. It's in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus gives six examples. Some theologians and uh, uh, expositors call it six uh, antitheses. It's not against the law, but what he does in there is he takes something out of the Mosaic law and he gives uh, another statement which gives us a deeper understanding of what that law was intended to be. It's, the, the point is, it's not external righteousness that God wants, but he wants what? An in, internal rightness of the heart. That is what the commands are about. And in fact, when you look at what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount in these five antitheses, they are actually harder to keep than the Ten Commandments themselves. Take a look at them. You, you go back to this, the beginning of this section, and the first one was about uh, murder. But he, what the point he makes is anger is murder of the heart. And what does that deal with? It deals with the sixth commandment. And then he moves on to adultery, and he says lust is actually adultery in the heart, and that deals with the seventh commandment. And then he talks about divorce. Abusing the divorce law that's found in Deuteronomy 24, not found in the Ten Commandments, but abusing the divorce law actually leads to adultery. And then he comes to the passage that we read. Abusing oaths, a system of oaths, can lead to lying. Bottom line. Disingenuity. Prevaricating. And that deals with the, with the Ninth Commandment. You shall not lie. And then he deals with another, another couple. He refers to the lex talionis, which is an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth. And he says there, retaliation in the new covenant is not fitting for kingdom people. And then he closes out with referring to Leviticus 19 about loving your neighbor. And he says, you know, loving your neighbor doesn't mean this, that you're supposed to what? Hate your enemy. So he takes a look, a deeper look at the law to have us examine our hearts. James picks up on this in the fifth chapter, a couple of chapters after what uh, Jim McKinney read this morning in our scripture reading, and he gives a parallel passage, James, brother of Jesus. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth, or with any other oath, but your yes is to be yes, and your no, no, so that you may not fall under judgment so what is the nature of oaths? What are we talking about here? We look at the background. We know that we use oaths to verify the sincerity or the truthfulness of the speaker, whether it's entering military service or whether it's in a courtroom. It's usually sworn upon an object or a person, uh, something or some person with whom they have a relationship. 
It could be upon the Bible. It could be in the name of something. And the power or the awe that we hold or the awe that we hold or the power that it contains, that object or person gives significance to the words we speak. The character of that object or person upon which we swear is supposed to give credibility to our words. Some modern examples would be sometimes we close by saying, so help me what? God. Or as God is my witness. Ancient oaths were like conditional curses. That is, if one did not keep one's oath, something bad was certainly going to happen. And we really say much the same thing. Cross my heart and what? Hope to die. There's the curse part. You see, if not kept, a broken oath then dishonors not only the person that speaks it, but dishonors the object or person upon which it was vowed. Breaking an oath then involves not just the person who speaks it and breaks it, but it, it, it is complicit in making the one upon whom you have sworn almost guilty. And the more valuable the object upon which one swears, the more valuable or awesome and powerful the person, the greater the guilt is for the person who breaks the oath. You know, oaths in pagan society were profound, and they were part of the glue of society. Lycurgus in the fourth century in Greece said that it brought cohesion, oaths and swearing oaths brought cohesion to Athenian society. It was like a cultural glue. Plenty later of Roman culture, he also spoke of the consequences of oath-breaking. He said, if my oath isn't true, let divine vengeance, let the vengeance of the gods fall upon not only my head, but the heads of my family. In Jewish culture, in Mosaic law, oaths served a purpose, a couple of purposes, one moral or religious. For example, if a woman was accused of being adulterous, then there was a test that the woman was to go through. And she was to drink bitter water. But when she, when she drank that bitter water, she swore an oath that was like a curse. She said, if I am guilty, I swear that I did not commit adultery. If I am guilty of breaking this oath, then may my thigh waste away. So they used it for moral and religious purposes, but also social order and business transactions. And if you look at Numbers, the 30th chapter, there are a number of different oaths that are given there which are allowable. The only thing that... The only condition about those oaths was the warning that you should not swear falsely. In the rabbinical code, they had an elaborate hierarchy of laws that governed oaths. In the Mishnah, there was one complete tract that spoke about what kinds of oaths were valid and what kinds of oaths were invalid. And you see, this is where Jesus is going with this. Because there was a legalistic attitude about oaths. A legalistic attitude that was hair-splitting. Well, I can swear this way but not that way, and on this object but not that object. In the example of Corban, for example, you know, Jesus condemned that because what people would do is they would pledge, they would vow, they would pledge their money ahead of time to the temple, but then what they could do is they could escrow it in the meantime and they could live off the interest or whatever, not interest, but they could live off the proceeds until then they died. And they did what? They didn't help their parents. They said, no, I've sworn Korban to the temple. And Jesus said, that is duplicitous. It's that kind of oath giving that Jesus was against. Jesus condemned this kind of legal wrangling and hypocrisy. 
and the woes that he pronounced upon the Pharisees. He called them blind guides because they say, oh, well, whoever swears on the temple, uh, that's nothing. But whoever swears on the gold that is in the temple, then they're accountable, they're obligated. Or if one swears on the altar, well, that's nothing. But if one swears on the offering or the gift that is on the altar, then you see, then they're obligated. You see, it was that kind of hair splitting that Jesus was against. There were problems with oath-taking in Jesus' day. You see, it had become so commonplace that oaths were trivialized. They were trivialized to the point that everybody swore oaths on about everything for just about any purpose. And they would use those oaths to twist for their own purposes. You see, oaths became so watered down that they were insignificant. And then, on grave occasions when it really mattered, oaths really didn't count for much. They were frivolous. They were broken all the time. You know, the word prevaricate pretty much describes this situation. We think of, I do at least, prevarication of being a nice way of saying, you prevaricate is saying, you're a what? You're a liar. But that's not really what prevaricate means. Prevaricate doesn't mean to lie. What it means is to avoid the truth. Folks, we live in a prevaricating society today. We live in a society today, in a postmodern society, where words don't mean what they used to mean, and people twist those words, and they prevaricate to avoid the truth, but they don't think they're lying. You see, in this whole business about swearing oaths, the object was pivotal. Jews said that unless, and this was before they stopped pronouncing the name of God, Jews said that unless God's name was specifically mentioned in the oath, then the oath had no value. So they had lengthy debates about which those oaths were binding and which ones were not. And many people would swear on, swear on many other objects like heaven or Jerusalem or whatever, and then when it came right down to keeping their oath, then they said, well, I don't have to keep it because I did not swear on God. So you see, this led the rabbis then to complain about the frivolous attitudes about their legal code of oaths. It led philosophers like Philo to come to the conclusion that Jesus came to, and that was, you know what? One's word ought to be sufficient as one's oath. The Essenes that were separate from Jewish society said, we ought simply to tell the truth and never use oaths, as Jesus did. So in this passage, we see two or three things I think that are important. The first is, he was saying, stop this kind of deception altogether. Don't participate in a system that, in fact, leads to duplicity and deception. He was also saying, you know what? Nothing, in fact, that you swear on do you really have control over. And then finally, he said, what really matters is what Sally Ann said. And that is, it's a matter of character, not rules. When he says stop this kind of deception, you know, he talks about an old standard and a new standard. The old standard, again, you have heard it said to the ancients, they were told that you shall not make false vows or false oaths, but shall fulfill the vows to the Lord. Well, if you look at that, there are two commands there. The first is you shall not swear falsely, and that's based on a couple of Old Testament texts. Exodus 20, verse 7, the third commandment, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in what? In vain. And then Leviticus 19, you shall not swear by my name falsely. So that has to do with swearing false vows. The second command then is he, he says that we must keep the vows to God. This is related to Deuteronomy 23, where 
it says, If you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay in fulfilling it, for the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and you or you will be guilty of sin. You may notice a shift in those two commands. The, the first clause has to do with making vows in general. You don't make a false vow. But then the second command he shifts to specifically vows made to God. The implication is what Jesus is saying is God's watching all the time. You make a vow, you're making it in the presence of God anyway, whether you invoke the name of God or not. Any vow that a person makes carries that kind of weight, and we're answerable to God on any kind of vow that we make. Jesus' new standard then was this. He was opposed to this whole corrupt system, and he gives a negative command, which is an absolute prohibition. It sounds like it is at any rate, where he rejects the whole system because it promoted duplicity and dishonesty. I'm not so sure that he was against vows themselves. I think he was against the system that promoted it. And then he makes a, a positive statement of the deeper, proof, the deep, deeper truth. There should be one standard of truth for all time, and that's what you say, your word. There should not be a double standard. Uh, you know, you're, you're truthful all the time, but when you make a vow, you're going to be especially truthful? Is that what you're going to do? That's a kind of double standard. Be honest all the time. Don't be economical with the truth. And it raises a couple of questions. The most important one is, you know, when we, when we feel like we need to have vows for our credibility and our integrity, it raises this question. Are we honest when we don't swear? Then Jesus moves from his command that he's given to this issue of control. He says, you know, nothing is under your control anyway. Look at verse 34. Don't swear by what? Heaven, for it's God's throne. By the earth, for it's his footstool. Or by Jerusalem, it's the city of the great king. Nor swear an oath by your head, because you cannot make your hair white or black. What is Jesus doing here? He's raising the question on how great does something be, uh, should it be, or how small can it be before you swear upon it? Or does it really matter? And he progresses from the greatest to the least. His ultimate point is this. All of these things that I have mentioned really aren't under your control to begin with. You really are not valid in swearing upon any of them. Take a look at heaven. It's not your domain. It's God's. It belongs to God. You swear upon God, what you're, uh, upon heaven, you're actually <clears throat> presuming something you shouldn't presume. You're presuming upon his sovereignty and his freedom as the unfettered Lord of all the cosmos. Isaiah 66 says, Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. Where then is the house that can be built that can contain me? And where is the place that I am required to rest? When we swear upon heaven, we are then presuming upon the sovereignty of the almighty creator and his freedom. Then he moves to the earth, and he narrows the scope from the cosmos to the earth, and God controls that too. He controls not only all earthly matters, but all human history. And making such oaths upon the earth then presume upon another thing. They presume not just upon his sovereignty and his freedom, but upon his providence. And then he narrows it down to Jerusalem. Then narrows the focus to the capital city of a nation. And basically Jesus is saying if they swear on Jerusalem, they're presuming on something else. 
They're presuming upon the kingship of God and his covenant relationship with his people. Psalm 48 puts it this way. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. His holy mountain, that is the beautiful Jerusalem in elevation, the joy of the whole earth in Mount Zion in the far north. That Jerusalem, the psalmist says, is the city of the great king. And then he narrows it down to something else that we don't have control over. Don't have control over heaven or earth or Jerusalem. We don't even have control over the hair on our own head. He narrows it down to the, the individual person. And one of the smallest things that is on our body, a hair follicle. He says, you can't even make your hair, hair white or, 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 or black. Well, they, they dyed hair in Jesus' day. <laughs> but you don't change the nature of the hair. You just cover it up. You cannot turn your hair white or black permanently. Uh, you also can't hold on to it forever. It falls out. You know? and, and, and by the way, we're presuming not only on his sovereignty and his providence and his kingship of the covenant people. Here we're presuming upon him as the sustainer. For who is it that cares for our head? Who is it that has numbered the hairs on your head? We said last week, it is none other than the Lord God Almighty. And we swear upon the hair on our head, which we believe is ours. Folks, it's not ours. He gave it to us. And he knows when one falls out. So you see, we don't have control over any of these things that we swear upon, Jesus said. And then finally, he moved to the third point. You see, truth is really a matter of what character and not rules. The essential principle here is, friends, he's telling his disciples and those that are listening, be transparent without cover-up. Be straightforward. Don't hedge your bets. Don't hesitate. Don't try to qualify the truth many, with many other statements. The corollary point to this is your word should be what? Sufficient. Your integrity should be enough. Oaths and this system of oaths are nothing but a crutch that prop up empty words. Tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Don't be economical with it and save it just to the time when you give an oath. Half-truths are nothing but lies in themselves. You see, this is a matter of character. Be honest at all times, be simple and sincere, and speak plainly. There's an alternative, you see. When we don't do that, he says anything beyond this is evil. Whenever we rely on that kind of system, Jesus says, we raise doubts about our motives. Because when people have to use oaths, it raises questions about their veracity at other times. It presumes an atmosphere of distrust where we require people to make oaths, Jesus is saying. And there's an evil impulse behind it. You see, the evil impulse we find in Genesis 3 at the very beginning, the father of lies. He says to the Jews that were listening to him in John 8, you are of your father, the devil, and you do his desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, and he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks, it's a lie, and he speaks thusly out of his own nature. For you see, he is a liar and the father of lies. You see, behind this kind of system was a duplicity and dishonesty, Jesus was saying, that goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. So what happened after this? What happened in the early days of the early church? In the first three centuries, most Christians followed Jesus' words literally, and they faced persecution by the state. When the state required them to make pagan oaths, they refused, and they were persecuted. They were put to death. But then Constantine came in, and the, we had the marriage of the church and state together, and the Christian imperial court began to expect Christian citizens to pronounce oaths, especially as witnesses in courts. 
Theologians took exception to that at the beginning, but eventually theologians like Augustine gradually endorsed the policy. In certain instances, it was okay to pronounce an oath under two conditions. Number one, when it was necessary for good legal and social order, or if there was a greater benefit to come out of the oath. And eventually we know what happened. Especially in the West, Christian nations adopted the oath system in the court and for military service and other things like that to pledge their loyalty to the crown and also to the church. During the Reformation, the magisterial, the mainstream reformers said that oaths were biblical and necessary for political and religious freedom and to secure those. Later, they began to make accommodations in the... um, the English Toleration Act in 1689. It's one of the first that I've been able to find. They had been required to swear before that, but then they began to allow people that did not want to swear because of what it said in Matthew 5. They allowed them to promise or solemnly declare. Actually, you know this, that the president, when he then gives the oath, he he has a choice. He can say, I swear, or he can say, what's the other word? I affirm. And there's only been one president who has done that. It was Franklin Pierce in 1853. The radical reformers like the Quakers and the Anabaptists took exception to swearing oaths. They said, no, we should tell the truth all the time. And then to swear an oath later to say, well, I'm really going to tell the truth now was a double standard. The Anabaptists and the Mennonites went on to say that they wouldn't swear loyalty because they would not submit to the authority of the magistrate who then... Uh, Well, they submitted to his authority, but they said that the magistrate did not have the authority then to have them swear. They said that oaths were biblical in the Old Testament, but they were not Christian in the New Testament. So let me close with a couple of final observations. What did Jesus really mean when he was talking about this oath business? I believe that Jesus did recognize that certain oaths served a good purpose. There were some times when an oath could be required. I think he's speaking about this against the system of oaths and saying oaths in that system. After all, God himself swore an oath. Hebrews, the sixth chapter, which was written, of course, after Jesus said this. But the author of Hebrews put it this way. For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. He was saying, as I am God. I swear that this will happen. Jesus himself, when he stood before the high priest, didn't say, I swear this, but the high priest commanded him to give a pledge or swear to the credibility of a statement. It went like this. The high priest stood up and said to him, why haven't you answered my questions? What is it it that these men are testifying against you? And, And Jesus did what? He kept silent. He didn't say anything. And then the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. And what he was saying there was, I require you to swear by God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus did not remain silent. He then gave a testimony before the high priest. You said it yourself, he said. Nevertheless, I tell you that you will see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. I don't think that Jesus was saying that for time and eternity that we never, ever pledge anything. I think he was against the system that promoted duplicity and corruption. Jesus was laying not down a legal and absolute prohibition. I think he was saying this, you need to be honest all the time. 
Sometimes it may be required for you to give an oath, and we have that today, for the good order of society. But folks, you don't swear on things that you don't have control over. And you only swear when you're required to. His purpose was to do what? To fulfill the law in its original intent. And the original intent of the law, the commandment number nine is you don't lie. Be truthful all the time. In situations that you do control, you don't need an oath. You just speak the word that is the word of your integrity. And in situations that you don't control, when you go into a court of law, there is one thing that you can control, and that is what you say, and it must be honest. Let your word be your bond, and let it establish your reputation of honesty. And then the last observation I would make is this. How does this apply today? You know, you may or may not agree with whether or not the Bible tells you you cannot swear in court. And Christians are divided about that. I believe it's permissible. You may not. But how does this affect us in postmodern culture? You see, postmodern culture rejects absolute and clear statements of ultimate truth. And that's problematic. And you know it. We all know it. It's based on a philosophy and a hermeneutic that's rooted in reinterpreting our language, reinterpreting ideas, reinterpreting those fundamental structures of our society, and redefining very simple things in obtuse ways that blur reality. Let me say that again. That's what's happening in our society, folks, in postmodern society. Not just philosophers, but people every day are reinterpreting basic values, basic ideas, basic words that have had long-standing truthful meaning based on statements of truth. And they're redefining them in ways that blur reality. Let me give you an example, and I don't mean this to be political. An example would be during the Clinton administration. Now, some of you weren't around then. It's hard for me to believe that, but this was about 26, 27 years ago, okay? You might remember that he was impeached, and the impeachment passed, but he was not convicted. And the question was, did he lie when he was under oath about his relationship with Monica Lewinsky? Okay, now I don't want to focus on that so much except to indicate what's happening in our society, You know, post-modernity has blurred the way we use words in such a way today. When you don't believe that there's absolute truth, then you don't have absolute definitions for words. John Leo wrote an article in U.S. News and World Report in March of 1999 in the midst of this controversy, and he entitled it Pomobabble. Pomobabble is the postmodern kind of language. Now, what was he talking about? You see, Clinton, when he was asked, was he in a relationship with her, he said, there is nothing going on between us. And you know what the argument revolved around. How do you define the word what? Is. Now, please, I'm not trying to attack the president on this. What I want us to see is what's happening in our society. What's the definition of is? Well, here's the definition that Leo gave uh, in his article, according to postmodernity. Is is defined this way. 
The multivocality of semanticism, essentialized in a dialogue of being, instantiates while it interrogates a hermeneutic of self-annihilating discursive spaces, which occludes the ontological signifier. Say what? Say, huh? How do we define R, you know? My, my point is this, folks. We live in a society today which wants to dismantle all structures of truth and redefine them and blur the distinctions of reality. That's where we live today, friends. We live in a prevaricating society. We live in a society that would rather avoid the truth than to speak it. So this has something to do with what we said the other day. We not only need to speak boldly the truth, we need to speak it plainly. I think what Jesus is saying, that our witness and our testimony for him must be true. It must be consistent with our character. What we say is who we are, and who we are is what we say. Our testimony, when we give it, should be sincere, without ulterior motive, selfish motive, obscuring reality. Our testimony must be forthright, without duplicity, firm and unwavering. Our testimony must be plain. It must be clear. It must be simple. Why? Because, folks, if we don't speak plainly the gospel, the world will never understand. We need to speak it forthrightly and clear. I don't think that this passage is so much about specifically oaths as it is Jesus is saying, when the ninth commandment says, don't lie, speak plainly. Speak the truth forthrightly. Don't prevaricate. Would you pray with me? Father, we know that this is your world, and we know around us that people would change it. We know that you're sovereign. We know that you're providential. We know that you're king of all creation and that you're the covenant God who loves us and cares for us and sustains us. May we never presume upon your power and your glory to say things in your name that are not true. May we always be truthful. May we always be plain. May we always be clear. And the clear message that we know from you today is this, that you sent your only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. The simple message of the gospel is that you love us and you do not want us to die and enter into eternity separated from you. And our prayer is this morning that as somebody hears that simple message and the Holy Spirit works a power of conviction in their heart, that their mind will open to the gospel and their soul will then submit to you as Lord of all creation by accepting Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And may that simple truth transform them so that they might also come someday to the river of the water of life that flows from your throne. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. We have a time of invitation.